Okay, before we get into um, what we're going to look at this morning, let me just share a story we had um, the other week. Uh, we were given as a family some tickets to go to Drayton Manor theme park. Does anyone know about Drayton Manor theme park, which is local, which is a theme park? And if you've got little kids, it's great because it's got Thomas Land there. If you've got older pe- kids or you're an adult and you want to go, it's got all these kind of groovy rides that just basically make you nauseous and you know put you through the ringer. But people love that, and so it's a popular thing local. And there are other theme parks we have around the country that you may have heard of. It's kind of a, a big business. And we'll give some tickets to go as a family to Drayton Manor, and particularly Thomas Land will have an appeal to our two boys. You get to go to Thomas Land, very exciting rides, and they're really excited about going. We got a day off school because the school had a teacher train day, so we had a day where not many people would be there because they were all at school, but our kids obviously said, we'll take you to Drayton Manor because we've got these tickets. Um, and we, then we kind of, we hit up a bit of a problem because our eldest son, Levi, he'd been before when he was quite young, we'd taken him. So he had an idea in his head of like, we're going to the, the theme park. Oh yeah, I remember going to Thomas Land a little bit. I'm going back. However, his younger brother, um, who's now four, when we first went, the one time we went before, he was a baby in a pram. He had no clue of anything. And we had to try and tell him, we're going to, we're going to a theme park. And he, he struggled with that because he understood the word park but the word theme, he hadn't got a clue what that meant. So he so basically said, we're going to a, th- a theme park. And he, he, all he heard was, we're going to the park. And he got very excited because we go to the park quite a lot. We've got parks around here and parks have slides and they have swings and they have a roundabout and place to run around. And they're good places. They're exciting places when you've got two boys. You take them to the park, they love it. So he says, Daddy, yeah, I'm going to the park. I was like, no, we're going to a theme park, buddy. What, what you're thinking about is just the park we have locally. We're going to something much bigger and much better and much greater. He said, no, I know, Daddy. I'm going to go on the slide and I'm going to go on the swings. And I'm like, no, this park is better than that. It doesn't just have slides. It has like roller coasters and rides that take you up and down and really high. And they take you on things that go round and you can see everything. And it's going to be really exciting. He said, Dad, I'm so looking forward to going to the park. And I'm like, no. And I sat there trying to get him to comprehend something that was bigger and better than what he understood in his little kind of little world that he lived in where he thought the park and then when we actually got to I said okay in the end I gave up I said right we're going to the park so on the day I said I'm going to the park daddy but when we drove in and you kind of drove into the site and you get to see some of the kind of the roller coasters and the rides and stuff and they're huge they're massive they tower above you you should have seen his little face he was like, wow, this is a park, Daddy. And I'm like, this is what I've been trying to tell you, son. So when we went into the Thomas Land bit, we went on these rides. Some of them were up high, and there's a helicopter thing that went up and down, and all sorts of stuff that squirted water. And the boys had an absolutely outstanding day. And by the end of it, Asher kind of had grasped something. Oh, yeah, I go to the park, Daddy. And then he's like, and then we, we're on the way home. He says, can we go back tomorrow? And you're like... No, it doesn't quite work like that, but I'm glad you had a good time and I'm glad you saw something more than what you were expecting. And what we're going to be looking today as we go uh, through the book of Hebrews is this idea of something bigger and greater. And the author, of the, the writer of the Hebrews, is right of them and he's particularly saying there's something you know, something you're familiar with, but this, what I'm going to tell you about is way bigger, way greater. It's of a different order. It's something so much more. You're used to this. And what I'm going to tell you about is so much bigger than you can kind of grasp, but let me try and explain it to you. So if you've got your Bible, let's start. We're going to start at uh, chapter 4, verse 14, and then we're going to read through to sort of the first chunk of chapter 5. It says, 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, big idea for today. Jesus is our perfect representative before God and God's perfect representative to us. Jesus is our perfect representative before God and God's perfect representative to us. Now what we've looked at as we started Hebrews, Hebrews ran out those first few verses at the beginning. The author just sets out where he wants to go by proclaiming how awesome and mighty Jesus is. Those opening verses where he describes him in such incredible terms. This God is amazing, this Christ. And then he proceeds through these opening chapters to remind us that Jesus basically is better than everything. And he goes through certain things. He says Jesus is better than angels. He said, Jesus is the founder of our salvation. He's better than Moses. He gives us a better rest. And now he's talking about Jesus is a better high priest, is what he's kind of going. He's basically making this argument again and again that Jesus is superior to all other things. And a little bit of background about the high priest. Now, we've already said that the, the original readers of this would have been Jewish Christians. So people who've made a commitment to follow Jesus, but their background would be very much in the Old Testament. So they'd have understood what was written there. And the image of the high priest would have featured throughout the Old Testament. It's something they've been very familiar with. The high priest was the kind of highest religious leader in the nation of Israel. He was descended from Aaron. So that you mentioned Aaron in the passage there, who was the brother of Moses. Go back to Exodus Numbers, you see this. And the high priest was one of his descendants, one of his line, and their job was to minister at the tabernacle where the presence of God was, later the temple in Jerusalem where the presence of God was, and their job was to minister there. And they had a uniform they had to wear that was beautifully innately engraved, and they basically represented the people to God. They held the Urim and the Thummim, which turns up in the Old Testament, which was a kind of a way they used to discern the will of God, which was stuck inside their kind of their ephod, their breastplate. And they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people before God to make atonement for sins. And they were the ones, the ultimate representative of the people of Israel between to God himself. So they stood before the people to God, and then in turn they represented God to the people. So it was an incredibly high calling. Their most kind of highest sort of 
job they had was the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus, where they had the Day of Atonement, where they would, once a year, they would enter the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in the middle of the tabernacle, in the middle of the temple, which was a place where the Ark of the Covenant was, um, and it was where the presence of God dwelt on earth. And once a year, they would go into that place. And all the other time, no one was allowed in there. Only the high priest once a year, they would go in. And they would offer the blood of the sacrifice as an atonement for the people for all the sins they had committed in the previous year. And so it was a huge thing in the life of, is, uh, of the people of Israel. So they'd have been very familiar with this. But then what the writer is saying is, you know all about the high priest. You know about the Aaronic line. You know about that kind of thing. But actually, Jesus is better than that. Jesus is a high priest, but he's a high priest of a completely different order. You think of it like this, you've got this, this high priestly rituals that go through, you're familiar with it, but Jesus has come and he is something bigger and better. And there are four things I want to just run through today about Jesus. He is a superior high priest, he's a compassionate high priest, he is a submissive high priest, and he is an effective high priest. First one, a superior high high priest. It says there, when he describes him, he doesn't just call him a high priest. What does it call him? He said, we have a great high priest. Great means bigger, better, more. If something is great, it's better than everything else. There's a coral reef in Australia. What's it called? The great. It's not just a barrier reef. They're they're everywhere, you know, coral reefs, but this is the great one. It's huge, largest in the world. It's massive. So it's a great one. It's something bigger, and he is described as a great high priest. Not just any high priest that come from that line. There have been many of them over the years in the history of Israel. He is a great high priest, therefore he is unique. And actually, over the next few chapters, this theme of the high priest is going to come up again and again and again. And one of the ways it describes his greatness is because it says he's a transcendent high priest, because it says he is where? He has passed through the heavens. All the other priests were earthly priests. They were bound on earth. They did things on earth. But there's something about Jesus and the order of him that he actually passed through the heavens. He was a, on a different order. They served before a heavenly, um, sorry, an earthly temple, these other priests, from an earthly place. Jesus has gone to the heavenly place, the heavenly sanctuary. He has passed through something that was beyond all of them. And he has now gone up into the heavens. And then it describes him. It says he's Jesus, the Son of God. Why does he describe him like that? We've well, got two things there. Jesus is his human name. That was a name Jesus the man was given at his birth and he grew up and we all know that. We read the stories he was referred to Jesus. Everyone knew his name, Jesus. So he was human. But then it also describes him as what? Son of God. So what does that say? He is divine. He is not only fully man, but he is also fully God. So he doesn't just represent man perfectly, he actually represents God perfectly. So we have something of a completely different order. He is perfect in his representation of manhood to God. Because he was perfect, he was sinless, but the same way he is perfect in his representation of God to man. He fulfilled both of them perfectly. A human high priest failed on both counts. They weren't perfect before God, and they definitely weren't perfect before man. They failed completely, but Jesus is completely different. He is the one who is above everything. He is superior. And at the end of that verse, it says, we hold fast to that confession. This is the truth of our faith, who Christ was. It's what marks the Christian faith from every other pseudo-Christian faith out there. Because they all have problems with Jesus. 
They all want to undermine who he is. True Orthodox Christianity says Jesus was fully God and fully man. And you can't take either of those away from him. He wasn't a spirit who wafted around with us on earth. And he wasn't something less than God. He was completely, fully, totally God together. And there is a mystery to that. I do appreciate that. But the Bible just says deal with it. That's the truth. That's what he's like. He is fully God and fully man. So he is a completely superior high priest to everyone who's come before him. But what else was he? It says later in those following verses, he was a compassionate high priest. Someone who was so perfect, so above us, could cause us to shy away. To actually think they're, they're almost they're too good. We couldn't possibly deal with them. We couldn't possibly approach them. They're so far above us. They're so better than us. They're so different to us. How could we possibly relate? How do you do that? How does man relate to God when God is holy and transcendent and above there and we are down here so sinful and finite compared to him? Well, luckily, we have a compassionate high priest because what does it say about this high priest? He is, he is not unable to sympathize with our meekness. So the double negative means he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Despite being God, despite being perfect man, he came into this world and he endured the whole kind of spectrum of human emotions and human problems and human frailties. We have someone in heaven who knows exactly what we're going through. If you think about what's just come before in Hebrews, if you just scan your eyes back there was an encouragement to enter God's rest, to hold on to it. And there was suddenly this great warning that says the lit word of God is living and active. It will expose you. It will expose your heart. It will expose your thoughts, which is actually quite terrifying when you think about it. Imagine the thoughts of your heart laid bare before anyone. Every thought you've had, everything that's happened, that's what the word of God does. It divides you. It, you can't hide from God's sight which is something that actually would make you want to just go fetal and cry and rock in the corner, that actually all the thoughts and the inclinations have been sort of exposed. But then what comes immediately after is actually there's someone in heaven who knows what it's like. All the things you're going through, all the pressures you're on, all the weaknesses you have, he knows about it and he can sympathize with it. He knows what it needs to be in weakness and frailty because he walked the earth. Uh, the, the writer actually starts talking in a personal sense. So actually he talks about us and we in these verses because he knows, the writer knows that he's in the same position. He's saying, uh-oh, I, I need a, I, I've got a problem here because God can see everything about my life. I need someone to stand in the place for me, to sympathize with me. Christ has been tested and tempted in every possible way Yet he did not sin with it, which is fantastic news for us because we know we've got someone there who when we go to God, we know that he is understanding of what, what's going on in our life. He's able to sympathize with us in every possible respect. But what do we do with that? What do we do with the truth who knows? With it? He says, well, then draw near. He says, let us in with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. He's basically saying, Christ knows all about your temptations, the pressures you're under, everything that's going on in your life. Think about your life. Think about what you've gone through. Think about temptations you've faced to sin, the evil things you've thought about doing, or things, good things you haven't done that you should have done. There's both sides to it there. Think about that. Christ went through all of it. We even have it written in the gospel accounts. Where was he? He was baptism filled with the Holy Spirit. Then what happened? Driven into the wilderness to face 
the devil and to be tempted by him. And they're all written down there. You can find that. I think it's Luke 4. You can have that. And I don't know if you've ever thought about Christ and his temptations. But the difference with when Christ faced temptations and when we face temptations is we face it to a point and then invariably we give in. Christ never gave in. Which means what he faced is way more extreme than what you ever face because he never gave in. Which means the temptation just kept coming, kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. And he resisted and resisted and resisted and never gave in. So whatever you're facing right now in terms of temptation, he understands. He knows because he's been through it and more than you have. What about financial pressure? Ever been under financial pressure? Where's the money coming from? How are we going to provide? What are we going to do? Christ himself was homeless. Described as a poor you know, when he was killed, he didn't have anything, did they? That's a, they? They gambled for just like his clothes. That's all he had. That's all that was left for the assets of his life. He knows what it means to be under financial pressure. What about fina- fi- family dynamics? Have you ever had an awkward member of the family? Is there an awkward member in your family? If you say no, it's you. Just, <laughs> just, just, just being honest about it. Think, no, there's no awkward member in my family. It's you. There's always one. Christ's family thought he was mad. They didn't believe him. They were like, what is he doing? Proclaiming these messages going around. They kind of almost like, huh? I know it turned around in the end, after it died and rose again, you know. But actually, they were, they were kind of, he had all that problems. His brothers, his mom, they were just like, what is going on with this? What about relational breakdown? Ever been through a relationship breakdown? Christ was betrayed. He was abandoned by his friends. So he got kind of stabbed in the back. But all the other ones just kind of disappeared. And he was left completely alone. What about physical pain? Ever been through physical pain? Christ was beaten. He was tortured. And then he suffered the most horrific death ever devised by man. He has been through it all. So he can sympathize and empathize with everything we're going through. And the response there then is to come to him. And find grace and mercy. We are to draw near to him. Draw near to him. He is our high priest in a heavenly sanctuary, not an earthly one. He is before the throne of God himself, far above the heavens that he's passed through. And he says, come to me and find grace and mercy in time of need. So it means whatever you're facing today, whatever it is, Christ A, knows about it. Knows in the sense of, you know, omniscient God who knows everything but also knows that is, I've been through that so you can't there can never be a well you don't understand sometimes we hear that and we talk to people we counsel them you don't know what I'm going through you can never make that accusation of Christ because he knows and then this third one it says guess what I've got I can help I've got grace and mercy for you in your time of need and it says we are to do this with what with confidence boldness there's a sense of like i can just waltz in to the throne room of god and talk to this great high priest and make demands for grace and mercy he's saying come to me do that have you ever watched children with their parents particularly the younger ones they don't care who's there they don't care what they're doing they don't care what anything else is doing they just waltz up Because that's the parent and they go to them and say, I want this. I want a drink. I want food. I want you to turn the telly. I want. And they couldn't care less who's around. And there's a sense of that in there. We are to enter boldly before God to say, this is what I need. 
He's not too busy. He's not going to send us away. He's going to offer it to us. And just to underline this, what, when he says we are to draw near to the throne of God, how do you think we do that? How, is that, how does that achieve? Draw near to God. Well, we don't, it's not like you actually physically draw near. I will draw near to the lectern and find grace. So how do you draw near to God? It's prayer. It's prayer. We are to talk to him. We are talking. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about prayer. We are to be men and women of prayer. It's a non-negotiable in the church. It's a non-negotiable in the Christian life that we are not men and women of prayer who talk to God. That's how we draw near to him. That's how we get this stuff. We ask him. I was reading literally just this week in a, a book and this phrase came out which said, which I just jotted down. I thought, well, that's um, worth thinking about. It's, he, the writer said, the root, the root of all sin... The root of all sin is prayerlessness. The root of all sin is prayerlessness. And what he was pointing out actually is there is grace and mercy available for us in every situation, in every need, in every pressure, in every temptation. And so if we are finding ourselves just relentlessly giving into that, underneath that all is a lack of prayer and going to the throne and asking for help. He's asking for help. And I thought that bears thinking about. So how do we pray? Well, we have the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' followers came to him and said, how do we pray? He said, well, let me, let me tell you. And we have what we now call the Lord prayer. Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And actually, really, it should be the church's prayer um, because it was who it was for. It's for us. We should be praying this prayer. Praying through the Lord's prayer is a great place to start. If you're not sure how to pray, find someone in your life group, someone you think they look like they know what they're doing. They must be praying. I'll ask them. Get them to help. We build it. We think it's so important thing. We built it into the life of the church here. From the very beginning, we started out how we're going to do the church, how we're going to make it all happen, what we're going to put where. One of the key ingredients we said was we are going to be a church of prayer. It, it is a non-negotiable. We have to build it in. And so when we started doing our life groups, we built it into the, the life group. So every week the life group meets. They have food together. It's important just getting to know each other, a bit of community. We talk a bit about how we're doing the most important thing in our life, which is our relationship with Jesus. And out the back end, we always, always, always pray together. Spend some time putting our eyes on Jesus, worshipping, and then praying. We can pray for one another. We can pray for church things. We can pray for whatever's coming up. But we always pray, and that happens every single week in our life groups. Without fail, that should be happening. You should have an opportunity. When you go to life group, there's two things you should know that happen. going to get fed, and I'm going to pray. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Okay, that's it. That's definitely going to happen tonight so I can put my money on it. That's what we should do. When we started our prayer meeting, Church at Prayer, all we did was drop one of the life groups. So we still had the meeting, but actually we devoted the whole thing to prayer. So we now do life group, life group, prayer. They're all life group, really, but actually we all met together and we prayed. And we spend the whole time praying and engaging with God because we need grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And we need to ask him for all the things that is going on in our life. We need to present our requests to him. So we said it's so important that what we'll do is we'll stick it in our, our church and we'll put it, we'll roll it around. Every three weeks we all gather together to pray and to come to God with our requests to find grace and mercy. Because we have a great high priest who is so eager and willing to help us. But if you look there, if we carry on to the beginning of chapter 5... He then talks, starts talking about the human high priest and what the human high priest was. And Jesus, obviously, being a great high priest above it, he does all this beyond that. This was the role of the human high priest, where it says, actually, they were, they were to deal gently with those who had gone, what, how to describe them? Ignorant and wayward. So that's us. 
That's everyone else. In fact, the high priest was to deal with the ignorant and the wayward, which is effectively the entire nation of Israel. And if we push that forward, we've got a high priest in heaven say, that job's taken, so we're all the ignorant, wayward ones. So when we're not sure, we're not going on, we're making a mistake, we're, we're falling apart, we have someone we can go to and help. Because that was the role of the high priest on earth when they did it. And it says, it says, makes this lovely phrase, it says in the beginning of verse 2, that he dealt gently with them. That's good news, isn't it? When you're being ignorant and wayward, it's nice if someone deals gently with you. Rather than says, are you stupid? Why did you do that again? Do you not know? You don't go there. You don't do that. All these kind of things. But it says that he is to deal gently with us. And that's what Christ does with us. He deals gently with us. He knows our weaknesses. He's lived this life. He's been there. He has great compassion and love for his people. And so we come to him knowing that we are going to find grace and mercy. We're going to get help. We're going to receive that. We can come with confidence and we have a high priest who knows exactly what we're going through. Even before we ask and he will come and stand alongside us. Let's move on. The next one, we have a submissive high priest. Now this, the next section there is making the point about Christ. Even though he has this exalted position, his exalted status, his actual route to that position was not something we might necessarily think about. Because the first thing it says in there, it says he was appointed by God. Christ, even though he had the right, did not exalt himself. He didn't come down as I said, actually God appointed him. He, appointed, he was called by God. He didn't exalt himself in this. And there's a couple of uh, psalms that are quoted, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, to underline this point. But you are my son, day I've forgotten you, are the priests in the order of Melchizedek. Those psalms, I think, have already been quoted so far in the letter. But actually he's saying, actually, Christ's exaltation to this great high priest was actually at the will of God. It was something he was appointed to. It was something he didn't strive for himself. And we've seen that bear out in the other parts of the Old Testament. It shows he has a great dependence on God. It says, in the days of the flesh, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. He was dependent upon God. When we talk about prayer and we should be people of prayer, who's our ultimate example? Jesus. He did it. We, he prayed. There's bits in the gospel where it says he, he went off. He left everyone. You know, I think maybe just they, were just they were getting too much, but he had to. I had to go out. He went to lonely places to pray. Even in um, John uh, John 17, we have the we actually have a prayer written out that he prayed the whole chapter. There's where he was praying in the garden. He was someone who was dependent upon God in what he did. And it says, uh, prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to be able to the one who be able to save him to death. The commentators believe he's talking about Gethsemane there, the night when he was arrested. Um, and his, his execution was coming shortly after that, that actually he was someone who was totally dependent on God, and he was praying to God there. But yet, despite that, despite offering the prayers of actually, he said, actually, may this cup pass from me. What happens? We said, the next thing he says, he shows great reverence for God. He was with reverence of God. That's that sense of fear, which we've already looked, the fear of the Lord, and we saw that in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom and understanding of who God is. It's a right reverence of who he is. He's a holy, transcendent God and Christ had that in himself. And then finally, when he said, actually let this cup of, this cup of suffering pass, what was, well, how did he finish it? Yet yeah, not my will, but he was obedient. 
he was completely obedient to God. And we have that phrase where it says he became obedient through suffering. The point is, he wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't obedient before, he always was obedient, but actually the result of his obedience was that he, came th- he went through suffering and he learned through that. He was our suffering servant. Isaiah 53, he was the one who, who went, went willingly to death. And as a result of these things, he was, he was, he was an exalted to the position we had. He was someone who came and he submitted himself. He took the form of a servant. Something being called God was something he grasped, something he went after, even though he was God and he had every full right to. He came and demonstrated uh, the willingness and the humility of a servant for us to follow. And in the last one, last couple of verses, he was an effective high priest. It says, I'm being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation. It's a reference back to Isaiah 45 where it says, but the Lord will save the people of Israel with eternal salvation throughout everlasting ages. All the high priests that had gone before, in essence, were ineffective. They had to keep doing the same thing over and over again. They were flawed in themselves as they were just sinful men. And they kept having to offer sacrifices daily, day for the people, the day of atonement once a year. They had to keep doing it again and again and again and again. Why? Because it wasn't effective. It, kind of, it, just, it was pointing forward to something that would come. And in the meantime, this is what they had. And they had to keep doing it. But then one day, a perfect sacrifice would come. There would be one who was completely effective that would die once for all. The Lamb of God. And when... John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ came. He was that perfect sacrifice. And as a result, he was exalted. And now so he offers eternal salvation to all his people. There's no more sacrifice. We don't have to, nothing has to die anymore because one has died completely. We don't do that here. No blood, no animals, nothing, which on the whole I'm pleased about because I think just that would just be a bit gross. But that... It's all been done. All the previous high priests, the line has ended. No more is needed because we have the one who is completely effective in what he's done. And then kind of it ends with that bit about, we'll get to Melchizedek, chapter 7. He's coming. You think, who the heck's Melchizedek? We will deal with that, but we'll, we'll leave it for now. But he's coming. A couple of sermons time, we'll have Melchizedek. We'll come and we'll find out. But Jesus is completely effective for high priest. 100% total, it's job done. He is in that heavenly sanctuary. He is the one ministering to God on our behalf and from God to us on God's behalf. He is that ultimate go-between and his priesthood is completely effective and done. And as a result, as followers of Jesus, as people who, who, who proclaim to, to follow him and obey his word, they are completely saved um, in all that uh, all that we have. And interestingly, it just points out there again, Hebrews, it loves to mention these things. It says it's for those who obey him. It's not something that you get free and easy. It's something born out of obedience to God. We have to do certain things in response to him. But we know those who've chosen to obey and follow him, we are saved completely, fully and totally. All right, four things to finish and we'll round this down. Let's land the plane. What does this mean for us here now that Jesus is our high priest? I want to just go through four things, hopefully, and outline it for us today, and then we're going to worship to finish. First one, access. Access. We have, because of Christ, we have direct access to God. Think about what that's like. You have unfettered access to the creator of everything. 
we go back to the beginning of Hebrews, that's what he said, isn't it, about Jesus. He created everything, everything was created through him. He holds it all together, but we have a direct line to him. If you can think about who are the most powerful, influential people on earth today. Imagine if you had your phone and you could just call them with any problem that you were facing. Anything. You had a money problem. Who's someone real? Like Bill Gates, the Microsoft guy. Bill got an issue with money. Do you mind helping out? And he's got like a gazillion dollars. Of course I can. I can help you out with that payment, shopping, cars broken down, mortgage. I just, fine, I'll send it. How amazing would that be? What about if you've got a problem, maybe a legal problem? Or something stuffing on the government. You've got a direct line maybe to someone at the top, like the Prime Minister or something like that, and say, hey, look, there's something going on here. Do you mind giving, giving someone a call and sorting it out? How amazing would that be? How amazing would that be? What happens if you're thinking, you know, maybe I want to uh, get in shape, lose some weight. Let's find some professional sportsmen and women, personal trainers. They come and talk to me. We just find out and say, hey, do you mind coming and giving me a hand with that? That would just be amazing. But we've got something even better. The creator of heaven and earth, whatever you're facing, any problem, we can go and talk to him about it. We can go and say, hey, come and give me, give me a hand with this. And because we have made a commitment to follow Jesus, because we've accepted who he is, what he said, his sacrifices, we now are holy and righteous before that God. We are saints, the Bible said. It's all the stuff we kind of do on the Freedom in Christ course. So we can come directly into his throne room. Anytime, any place, anywhere. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. In the car, on the loo, you know. God, I really need help with this. You know, when you have small children, that's the, that's the one safe. Not with that. You guys are gross. That's just. Toilet is the one safe place when you have small kids because you just lock the door and say, I'm busy, go away. You know, and you can have some time. But you have that moment. You can come to him wherever you are. There's no, you don't have to go to a place. You don't have to talk to a person. You don't have to put barriers between you. God, God says, I want to talk to you. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. You have that complete access to him. If you're not a believer here, that is open to you today. You may never have ever thought about that. Well, what does that mean? Well, actually... Jesus was who he said he would. He was God the Son. He was a God come to earth, lived as a man, completely perfect, completely righteous. He died a death that we should have died for all the things we had done wrong. He then rose bodily from the grave, ascended to heaven, and he's basically made the way over to God and says, I want you to come to God. And he's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And so the question I'm going to present to you today to think about is, are you talking to him? If the way is open, and on the, on the other side, if you will, is this direct access to the creator of heaven and earth, are you going to him? It'd be like if we were here and we opened the doors there, which on cue are just opening. Imagine on the other side of the door, I said, on the other side of the door is all you'll need for life. All you'll need to get you through every possible thing. You just need to go through the door. What would you do? There should be a scrum down. You know, there should be elbows going, you know, and let's get through there. And that's what it's like with God. He's saying, come to me, talk to me. Come and, you know, access me. The second thing, provision. We have direct access, but he provides what we need. Mercy and grace are the two mentioned there. And my question for you is, what do you need today? What do you need today? 
Bible says we can ask for wisdom. If we don't know what decision to make, in James, it says if you lack wisdom, ask. Ask that he will provide for you. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, it says that it talks about our daily bread. Forgiveness. He's got that available. If it's strength to get through whatever the next challenge is. If it's, you know, some grace you need to fix a relationship. He's got it all. So not only do we have direct access, he's got what we need when we get there. And so what do you need today before God? If there was one thing he could do for you in your life, what would you ask of him today? And we are to be people of prayer who go and ask him regularly, daily for, what he need, for our needs. He's, he's commanded that of us. We're to take that seriously and do him. What we're also to do, the kind of the flip of that, is we're to trust whatever he gives. Oh, that's annoying, isn't it? Sometimes we ask God and say, God, we need you to help with this, and let me tell you how I want you to help and how I want it to manifest so it just works out the best for me. We have to trust that he is a sovereign God who knows everything. He is completely loving towards us and wants good for us and to grow us. And we have to trust that when we ask sometimes, the way he asks isn't always the way we want. Let's be honest. And we have to trust him in that. So we we need to go. We need to have access. We've got access. We go. We need to ask. We need to expect provision for him. But we also need to trust that whatever he provides is what we need to get through the next step. We might be praying, God, there's this, there's this guy at work who is so annoying, the boss, a colleague, he's just making my life misery. I want you to remove him from us, you know, so I don't have to deal with him. And God says, Do you know what, I've heard your request, let me give you patience. <laughs> like, no, that's not what I, were you not listening, Lord? That's not what I wanted. He said, no, I'll give you patience and self-control. And you're like, no. He said, do you know what? I'll give you love too. So you can love the unlovely like I loved you. And you're like, really? Really, is that what I want? But sometimes God does that. So we ask for vision, but we need to trust what he gives us is the best for us. So the question there was, what do you need today? Third one, an example. Whatever you're going through today, right now, God knows about it intimately, completely. He has faced all the trials and the pressures of this world, so he understands. He's also left us an example to follow and how we face it. We have the four Gospels, beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that that tell us about Jesus' life. They give us example after example of how we dealt with situations, how we faced up to things, how we responded to things. We have the whole Old Testament, which which points forward to that, and the rest of the New Testament, which points back to that, about how you're doing. We have so much to learn from Christ in his example of how he lived his life. What he thought was important, what he didn't think was important, his devotion to his Father in heaven, his devotion to prayer how we treated the outsiders and the unlovely and the, the kind of the, the fringes of society and all the things he did, how we face suffering and injustice and frustration and all those kind of things. He did that. And so my question there is, are you learning about him? Are you learning about him today? May I suggest, if you haven't read a gospel for a while, grab one. Start working your way through one of the gospels and actually thinking, what can I learn 
from Christ about how he handles people, how he, how he kind of lived in the world. It's just a good, one, a good question to ask, as many you could ask, but that's one of them while you're reading that. What is it like to follow this example that we have? And the last one is hope. Life is full of so many uncertainties. There are things that we think are stable in our life, in this world, that literally could get shaken in an instant. There is nothing in your life that could not get rocked with a single phone call, a single meeting, a single knock at the door, and your life will just shatter with bad news. We might have high ideals about how we want to live life, but they can be undone in a moment by our own poor choices. I think we want to do this. But whatever happens in our life, whatever comes our way, we have an eternal high priest who is never going to leave office. He cannot be removed. He perfectly knows us. He perfectly knows God. He represents us to God and God to us. He says, come to me, come to me, come to me. He says, I have all the provisions you need to get through life. And when this life is over, beyond that, I have an eternity secured for you. Jesus said, my father's house, many rooms, right? What am I going there to do? Get one ready for you. We have great hope in whatever this life brings. And whatever you're facing today, whatever's going on, my question to you is, is your hope in Jesus? Really? Is your hope in Jesus? I know we thought of like, yeah, my hope's in Jesus, I'm a Christian. But actually in what you're facing right now, that big thing is your hope in Christ that will get you through it. The tough situation with work, with your finances, with your health, with the relationship situation, whatever it is, is your hope in Jesus because he is the one who's going to hold you through it and he will never, ever, ever let you go. And whatever the outcome looks like in this life, when this life is over, we have an eternity with him and we have that to hold on to regardless of what happens in the face of whatever comes to us. And that is good news. Amen? Do you want to stand up? I'm going to pray and we are going to finish. Maybe you just want to close your eyes. Open your hands. I'm just going to pray. Hopefully, my prayer is the Holy Spirit has been just been nudging things in your life, in your heart, as we've been talking, bringing things to mind. And we've just got a moment here before we worship just to bring them before God. And we're going to sing, and then we'll see what God does after that. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are our great high priest. Lord, I want to thank you that you stand before your Father in heaven before a heavenly sanctuary and perfectly represent us there. Thank you for your death on the cross and your subsequent resurrection, which makes that way open, that we can come boldly into your presence. Lord, I thank you that you bid us come. I thank you that we can come with confidence, boldness, almost a kind of arrogance, say, yes, we will go to our Father and we will make requests. Lord, I thank you that you have made that available. I thank you before you we stand righteous and holy because we are in you, the Bible says. We are new creations, the old gone, new come. 
Lord, I thank you for that. And I thank you, God, that, that you have provisions for us. Your endless grace, your endless mercy, the endless riches of heaven are available to us today. Whatever we need in this life, whatever we need right now, Lord, they're available to us. And I thank you for that, God. I thank you that we have a hope in you that is secure and certain. That whatever the winds and waves of this life throw at us, we are held firm by you. You are with us. You are standing by us. And Lord God, I ask you hear our requests now. And if you know there's things in your life you need to say, God, I want to talk to you about this. Just take that moment now. Bring it to him. You know it. I'm going to leave a little bit of silence and the battle play. But you just bring your request to God now. assured that whatever you've brought before God today he has heard it he has heard it and he will provide what you need for this situation he will provide what you need he will not leave you alone he will provide where it might not be exactly what you think but he will provide and he will watch over you and Lord Jesus we want to thank you for your grace upon us Holy Spirit we want to thank you that you're here with us Lord, we're just now going to put our eyes on you and worship you for a bit and we'll see what God does beyond that.